you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising and genre hopping podcast on the playlist podcast network this program you're listening to currently is called be real i'm chance solon pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard no happy uh happy march to you happy march to you too yeah how are things how are things for you you're you're half vaccinated you know people felt bad when I had underlying medical issues, but really I was just playing the long game to <laughs> cut the line here in the apocalypse. Right. Um, yeah. Right. How are, how are you? I'm fine, man. Um, just had the virtual Portland international film festival out here, watched a bunch of movies, none of which we have the time to discuss on the podcast because you and I've got a date, a date with the man who would be Kane. And even though I said it, credit is to you for that, to that name. Thanks. There was always also a, a documentary made some years ago with that oh, title too. Son so of it's it's kind of an easy layup uh, in retrospect. But what else would you call your podcast about the films of young Michael Caine? Um, we're celebrating both uh, his birthday this month and the fiftieth anniversary of the film Get Carter. Um, so yeah, we thought we would dive into the, let's say the front third of the esteemed acting career of this, you know, star of the 20th century who people in our generation are more familiar, I think, with emeritus stage Kane than, than these films. I know I certainly was more familiar with, uh, Alfred and, uh, the broken voice more than I was. (laughs) Uh, familiar with these sexual maniacs that he played <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. So we are going to talk about Alfie, Get Carter, Italian Job, and The Man Who Would Be King. I'm going to do a little mini... We were going to do Sleuth, but uh, you know you can't rely on streaming services for everything, fine folks. Every once in a while, there's like a totally normal movie where you're like that'll be there right and then it's not anywhere what the hell's that about so i i found a dvd at movie madness thank you movie madness we'll talk about just a little tiny bit about that but those are going to be our main four um right and the original genre i wanted to say was that these are not only early michael kane movies that were successful but they were early michael kane movies that were so successful that within the preceding five or 50 years they were remade yeah uh you know, notably, well, Jude Law notably filling in for the Michael Caine character in two of them. Right. Which, weird. that's like a weird <laughs> thing in retrospect to be like, wait, are you trying to tell me that in 1966, Michael Caine was like young, virile Jude Law? In terms of the sexuality depicted, it seems like that's what's going on. I would do not think he exudes the same you know, licentious energy. I don't know. Like I find Jude Law to be He's one of the most beautiful people. Yeah, at least sixty percent more <laughs> like just dripping with sex appeal than Michael Caine. Right. Right. 
maybe it's just I have like old man goggles on and I like can't see him as a younger man. Well, to your point, even as a young man, he himself enjoyed wearing old man goggles. Like he wore those giant black glasses that you could weld in. So yeah, to your point, there there were these remakes, but then we thought we would get in uh, Man Who Would Be King because that's a, a classic. It's sorts. just a classic. Um, also, obviously his movie stardom begins with 1964's Zulu. For the sake of the survival of our podcast, we thought only one nakedly colonialist film can be can be in here and we went with man who would be king instead of zulu but um right that's his breakout i think it's got enough for the rest of them i, I would agree zulu seems interesting i got i watched some clips um it's a well-regarded movie uh it essentially seems like it's sort of like the british alamo like it's just kind of like one long battle where the movie like pretends that these these are not rabid colonists in a, in a land that doesn't belong right. to them. And it's more about the nobility of combat against long odds. Um, right. Before we dive in, I want to tell you two things. One, we're happy as always to be a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find other shows like the Playlist Podcast uh, happening sometimes twice a week now. And uh, The Fourth Wall with regularity. Uh, you can find these on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever you happen to get your shows. We always appreciate a kind rating or comment if you would like to support the podcast network. Um, also, if you like what you're hearing here, the Be Real Patreon is up and rolling. For $3 a month, you can get uh, two bonus episodes each month with with Noah and I. Uh, Noah, we have a watch party Coming up on Sunday, March 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern. What are we watching? We're watching the 1999 classic, The Mummy. Ah, yes. Everyone is welcome. Do not read from the book. Uh, No, death is only the beginning. Do not read from the book, but please do join us at our free watch party. All are welcome. Born Maurice Joseph (laughs) Micklewhite Jr., Sir Michael Caine. Oh my God, I love it. Uh, what we, is there to say when we do these biographical episodes? Noah is always like champing at the bit to give me like the hospital wing the person was born in. Yeah, just their full like pre-death obituary here. <laughs> What's interesting, I think, is that especially in Nolan movies and for Americans and post the Cider House Rules Oscar in the late 90s. Michael Caine is often used to signal a kind of refinement in in movies. But this is not the case, especially in English movies in the in the 60s and 70s. Case in point, one of the things I found really interesting in doing some research is that his acting idol growing up is not Laurence Olivier or James Mason or John Gielgud. It's Humphrey Bogart. And I think that you can feel that. He is not like a raw actor per se, but what he's doing is often like very simple and very direct. And one of the things I found with all these movies is that I think he's really trusting the script in a lot of cases to carry the layers of the character. It doesn't mean he's doing a bad job or an uninteresting job, um, but I found that a lot of these movies, there's like a text that's working somewhere on the level or sometimes away from what you're actually watching. And I think that Kane is kind of just sometimes being a tough guy, 
being a charmer and letting the movie work. He's not pushing very hard ever. No. And I would say too that his physical performances, at least in this like 10 year period are pretty like subdued and also sort of like all poking around this same sort of persona that of course he would reinvent like in the eighties and nineties and then re reinvent uh, to the present. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to me, like what you're talking about is how like the script is shining through. And I would take it a step further that he's almost typecast to play these kinds of tough guy roles. Like the guy with the unflappable sort of set of like this code that he's living by, but ultimately from the, like the, he's a little left of center as they say. Right. And I think the fact that he is left of center, the fact that he's not Humphrey Bogart portends one of the things about his career where he actually finds his lane, which is that he is the best in team ups. He's the best when he actually like lets Laurence Olivier or Sean Connery, um, you know, or Steve Martin be at the center of the frame. And then he is a great second banana who actually, in some cases, the other part of his persona we should talk about is that he really like often exudes intelligence i mean i think there's a commonality in these four movies it's that his character is always smart enough to get into trouble get your knee off the steering wheel i can't i'm stuck here look out i'll do it oh well you're settled in right we can begin my name is alfie 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 bubbles with impudent humor and ripe modern wit says the new york times I was having a beautiful little life. There was this manageress of a dry cleaners. And I was getting a suit cleaned in the bargain. Everybody's running after Alfie. Do you love me? Uh, uh, what can I say when you ask? You shouldn't ask, you know. I'll tell you when I feel like it. Would you like me to give you something to make you sleep? Now, there's a good idea. All right, then. Come with me. Alfie, 1966. An unrepentant ladies' man gradually begins to understand the consequences of his lifestyle. I have to say, IMDb user-generated uh, uh, <laughs> synopsis here, that is a super misleading way to describe this movie. You think so? I think on the surface of it, like, yes, that is an accurate way to say how this movie goes down. But I would argue that gradually is doing like a lot of work right. in that I don't know that he really ever learns the consequences of his lifestyle. No, I think he perhaps feels deeper pain and then is confused. Right. I mean, he just like becomes an old loser, right. not to spoil it. Right. So essentially you have the movie opens with Alfie and the Daphne's mom from Frasier who was steaming up a, a small British vehicle in the late 1960s, like by a gasoline treatment facility. <laughs> and the movie sort of brings us in with this, like surveying the collection of wild dogs that have taken up residency at this place. Yeah. And then we kind of pan to this, you know, uh, bumping and moving vehicle. Uh, and we're introduced pretty quickly to the aforementioned unrepentant ladies man who is fully clothed mind you yeah. and he's Michael Caine 
uh, and he pops out. And what really surprised me, I guess, from it being a movie from 1966, is from the jump, we break the fourth wall and Michael Caine's like, let me tell you about my my wild lifestyle here. Yeah. Uh, and then the movie kind of unfolds with the episodes from this kind of dirtbag's life. Uh, and he also narrates like a parallel story of what he feels is happening. <laughs> It's funny you call him a dirtbag because this is a proto, proto, proto fleabag. Um, yes, for sure. And yes, I do want to say that uh, breaking the fourth wall to that extent at that time was a pretty revolutionary choice. I was trying to do some research. There were things in like uh, Laurel and Hardy movies where Hardy would kind of like, aw shucks, break the fourth wall. But I could not find, and I think you've got some things in horror movies where like the host will talk to the audience, but um, but not not the main character high fidelitying for the entire film in the 60s. And having such dissonance between like what's actually happening on screen and like the right. commentary you're getting, yeah. which I think, yes, it's totally smacks of Fleabag. Yeah. Pretty quickly, too, I think it has to be said up front. Uh, I would say in the first 45 seconds of this movie, if you do choose to watch it because of the podcast that we're doing right now, buckle up for it being like pretty uncomfortable in a contemporary context. You talked about the difference between the narration and what you're watching. This is based on a book by Bill Naughton and a play from the, from the early 60s. Um, there is this text happening about who is, I think, essentially like an aging sex addict, basically. Um, as we said, realizing and then not really realizing what's happening. And I think sometimes the movie is aware of that. Um, but the execution, the part of this movie that's seemingly in 1966 um, swept audiences off their feet, which is just Alfie, you know, barging his way like through all of these relationships and very quickly um, having a child and being kind of like smitten with that child, but then also like wanting nothing to do with it. And I don't like his sexual values, even though he talks about them constantly, they don't make any sense. What I'm saying is the part the comedy part of the movie where you're supposed to go, Oh, Alfie, Alfie, you dog for the first 45 minutes before reality <laughs> sets in. You don't, I don't go all oh, Alfie, you dog anymore. It's just like, Oh God, is, is this guy going to get what's coming to him? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, arguably he does. Sure, I mean, he like right. ends up dealing with some pretty serious illness, um, of which of course he like uses to his sexual advantage, uh, including sleeping with the wife of the guy in the bed next to him at the hospital yeah. after she witnessed him just having sex with some nurse. Right. But yeah, was there any part of like the, the sex comedy here that like worked for you or felt or like, you know, breezed its way and like that you found easy to watch? No, no. <laughs> so I don't, I think you're just talking about a movie where half of it like doesn't remotely work in. Uh, I just think we've had context. such a, like such a hard swing away from having characters like this be, you know, as you say, like incorrigible. Right. Um, and I think the movie does make an effort to 
bring reality to him in a way that's ultimately like not celebratory of his behaviors. But at the same time, like, you know, he's such like a Bukowski character or something, you know, where it's, I mean, yes, he is, there's, there is something about uh, his pathology here that's, you know, pathological, but I don't know that that, yeah, I don't know what the appetite is for that to be a sympathetic character in terms of, if we're, if we're talking about watchability. Right. Well, I think we could actually put a little more effort toward trying to place this. So what he is, is a, an insurgent of the sexual revolution in what is portrayed as like a still pretty conservative working class London. And so there is this kind of funny, like he enjoys sexual conquest, but like nobody suspects him because he's just like popping around to doctor's offices and dry cleaners. And seemingly we don't know this for sure, but like women are getting their kicks with with Alfie and not their boring husbands or their boring boyfriends. Well, he says that that's like one of the first thing he says is that like, you don't want to make things too serious. You know, they've got serious at home and that's what my appeal is to these women. Right. That's true. Um, I think he's right in a certain way, but I think like what's been so eye opening about the change in sexual politics between like the incorrigible man uh, and, you know, reappraising that uh, is the idea that sure he's right, but you're also talking about a system that he's exploiting Mm -hmm. where it's like women who need to tether themselves to a man in order to survive in this community being abused by this man who understands that their life is without a ton of passion. Yeah, your options were like World War II vet with PTSD who like now delivers milk or this guy who's at least willing to like joke and talk, but the things he's saying are all like, if you're a bird, don't talk to me about being a bird. It's like, okay, Alfie, right. please. And he also refers to his lady friends as it. Oh, Did sure. you notice that? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that he doesn't even acknowledge that they're people. I don't know. There's something icky about this movie. And I think it's hard to like really evaluate it. You know, yes, I think on a technical level, it gave us, you know, John Cusack from High Fidelity uh, and Fleabag. But in terms of like this being, I mean, it's a movie from the 1960s. Like how could it possibly be? in step with like how we understand male female relationships and the fact that it does kind of like the iconography you're talking about of the bird and the dog, like one of those is a predator and the (laughs) other one is a prey. Like that's the image. It's frustrating. I think to watch people try and fail to connect with Alfie over and over and over again. And he actually, in a lot of these movies is playing characters that, absolutely no one can connect with right yeah there is not a bridge especially in this one that alfie will not burn uh and that is kind of tough to watch um you know and i think this character will go in kind of an interesting place going forward uh you know with the sort of rise of unlikable protagonists in the 2000s right uh but yeah, it's it's definitely ahead of its time here. 
but definitely like in retrospect a sort of jarring way right should we tell people how we rate movies and then rate alfie on be real we rate movies in two categories good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability so what are the four possible ratings i don't care Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. This is probably my least favorite of the four. Um, just because I... I think I disagree with you there. Okay. But <laughs> I think this one it's a, is it's a courtesy the good, most bad? difficult watch. A courtesy good bad or a, no. a bad bad? No, I'm going in with clear eyes here. Uh, I say this one's a bad bad. No, I'll join you. This movie uh, did not... Oh, you're coming over to Bad Bad? One of the things is that uh, he's a character unlike... What's the high-fidelity character's name? Rob? Rob Gordon. You're just talking about... Rob Gordon. Someone who's so out of touch with his own emotions and psychology for the purposes of creating dramatic irony that like it just doesn't make... That part of it doesn't make sense in a 2021 context, either to say nothing of the politics. Like, people are just so self-aware today. It doesn't mean they're right about themselves, and especially doesn't mean it produces um, laudable behavior. But yeah, there's something about Alfie where at the end he's just like, I'm just going through my life and like, what's going to happen to Alfie? And then the song's like, what's up with you, Alfie? It's like... (laughs) It's like Alfie the are we sure he doesn't have a clue? And like that part you're not you can't really even invest in like his own vision of himself. Yeah, I'm an, I'm with you. I think it's a bad bad unfortunately. Come over to the dark side. That's what's going on with Alfie. Should we go to the Italian job? Go. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. This is the self-preservation society. This is the self-preservation society. We are about to do a job in uh, Italy. It's a very difficult job, and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. It was 1969. Uh-huh. Uh, 
that this one is a comic caper movie about. <laughs> Come on, synopsis. You don't tell us it's a movie. A comic caper movie about a plan to steal a gold shipment from the streets of Turin by creating a traffic jam. So in this one, our man Kane plays Charlie Croker, Captain who's Croker. just oh captain to me. I'm sorry, uh, who's just getting out of prison, uh, which must be a totally uh, fabulous prison because it's run by Noel Coward, right? Uh, which is uh, in a role of a lifetime. Uh, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, so he's coming out of this prison and, you know, looking to go. No, he never really makes an effort to go straight. It's very like Ocean's Eleven where it's like he's getting out and then suddenly he's lying about, you know, not gambling and not going to Las Vegas. Right. And he's looking for his next score and he hooks up with this Italian guy who in the prologue gets killed in this horrible car crash uh, in the hills of Turin uh, because this mafia guy like set up a trap for him. Mm -hmm. And it's something out of this movie like has so many interesting touch points of other movies of this era, because there's something very like bond villain about the setup to the beginning. And then all the mafia guys wearing the same sort of Kill Bill black suit with right. the skinny black tie. And they like come and go as if you like look away too fast, like 75 of them are gone. Uh, it's unbelievable. But yeah, so the the Croker storyline, though, is this sort of, again, very Alfie-esque character getting out of prison trying to facilitate the plan that the Italian guy who died in the opening was trying to do about shutting down the traffic system in this town square enough that it would cause a traffic jam when this gold shipment was going from the airport to this bank. Um, And much like any movie of this space, we see like the various characters that Croker picks up Uh, Croker's six or whatever oh i think uh, it's more like croaker's 21 <laughs> it's a lot well, there's of like the the immediate guys and then there's like people who show up in the action sequence in the back half of this movie and it's like i guess you're on the team right did anybody stand out to you among the collaborators and conspirators the only incredible visual wink to separate any of these supporting characters out was the weird moment when Benny Hill like gets out of that bus and he like tweaks that woman's tush and it like goes fast as they're like running away from each other really fast because like, I mean, does he have like some sort of writer that like all Benny Hill performances like must be in fast motion? Otherwise, they exactly like that's so weird to have like you cast just for a sequence where they speed up the sexual assault that you commit. <laughs> this movie's also like creates this Michael Caine sex addict who alienates the woman close to him who like picks him up and they're like a criminal couple. Yeah. It's like. Tess from Ocean's Eleven if she like hadn't gotten so pissed that Danny was a con man kind of thing. You're talking it's like about Tess in Ocean's Twelve. Lorna <laughs> played by Maggie Bly, yes. And but then he immediately just like fucks her over. Well, it's super weird though. She takes him to a hotel where she's like, Charlie, my love, you're out of prison. Obviously, the thing you want to do is have sex with me. 
and 10 other women. And then... Right. As like a gift. And there they are in this hotel suite. Yeah. And then like 10 minutes later, she goes to meet him in this like strange like open concept mission that he lives in that's like decorated like a dorm room with just like blankets and stuff as the only like dividing walls and he's having sex i think with three women in that scene and she's like no we only got to do this the one time when i arranged it people's yeah the understandings around infidelity and exclusivity at these times are so curious to me but then she ends up getting arrested for all the things that she did to like set up his wonderful release party right which is sad. Poor Lorna. Um, Completely disappears from the movie. Yeah. She's almost like a Harley Quinn to this like weird R-rated British Joker. I have to say it's a little bit of a bummer, but the first hour of this movie just like did not do much for me, to be totally honest. It's a snooze. It yeah, is a for sure. bit of a snooze. There are a couple cool things like there's the the smash cut from the fake funeral for Auntie Nellie where Noel Coward essentially just like threatens them all where it's like, you'll be buried next to Auntie Nellie if you fuck this up. <laughs> and then there's a smash right. cut to Michael Caine basically like waving a bunch of cars and vans onto this boat that's like rickety in the black ocean. Like, we gotta go, come on. <laughs> that's a good, that's a right. good scene. Um, yeah, there's some great photography, I would say. I mean, in all of this movie, but it really is like it takes its time kind of creating the aesthetic that it wants you to appreciate in the back half of this movie, which in its defense, I would say improves drastically. The aesthetic pays off. I, other than one scene where you're like, why are they crashing cars in that particular way? I don't think there's like a ton of planning payoff though, where you're like, oh, why were they doing that? And then it it comes to fruition. So that's kind of odd as well the supporting cast did not you know they get there's no great getting the band together scene which is kind of a bummer um yeah yeah no and i mean the movie has the challenge of you know basically having the first half be the character development and the second half being like the second unit with all the cars right (laughs) And there's, like, not a lot of overlap. I mean, like, there are shots of, like, are the characters that we've gotten to know over the preceding 45 minutes, like, driving around these cars. Uh, But for the most part, it's, like, very heavy action. And not, like, I mean, I would say really cool, like, car driving in urban and then very rural setting photography. um, Set to Quincy Jones. Set to Quincy Jones, which is an incredible thing to do, uh, which will inform... Uh, you know, the Fast and Furious. I mean, without this one, how would we have gotten Mark Wahlberg's Italian job? The last 40 minutes, though? Awesome. Alternately fun and exciting, and then sometimes just, like, adorable. Like, watching those little Fiats drive, like, on top of modern art museums while, like, one cop is like, I don't know which corner of the roof to go to. And the Fiats are like, ha well, <laughs> we're driving off the museum now. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's really cool. Uh, and I think it's, you know, occasionally cutting away to uh, Michael Caine. He's not even really driving that much. Nope. He's like kind of sitting in the back of that other truck. Uh, you know, and there's like the cool 
ness of them like coordinating everything and then like the cars like drive onto that bus and it's neat. you know it is neat it's really neat um but like you said you know i wish the first half had more dare i say you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off scenes mad respect for the ending though if okay if i know this movie is over 50 years old if for some reason you're like i gotta go watch italian chap right now skip ahead two minutes because the ending like the actual ending 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 is real i think the single best part of the movie i think it definitely like the irony how uh, how this movie ends really adds something to it um in its being like a an action movie that isn't afraid to not have a happy ending right Right. I guess the whole thing you're supposed to weigh at the end when he's like trying to get that gold is like, is he peachy from the man who would be king who like doesn't care if he's going to die with his buddy, like from getting killed by a huge group of people. Like it was, they were there for the laugh. Right. Uh, And this one's similar, but the laugh is like, we're here for the money. All right. What do we rate an Italian job? Uh, The Italian job I believe is a good bad. That's what I would say too. And I think the technical prowess on display, like in the back half of this movie more than justifies like the perhaps slow start. Uh, Yeah. yeah. But I think good, bad. One day a professional killer went home to visit his family and found his brother murdered. Now who killed him? I don't know nothing. Listen, the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter, a man with unbridled hate. Do you want to be dead, Albert? For Christ's sake. You knew what I'd do, didn't you, Albert? Listen, Christ, I didn't kill him. I when a professional killer hates, he turns animal. And there becomes but one law in the underworld jungle. Get Carter. Get Carter. Before Carter gets you. Don't let us interrupt you. 1971, Get Carter. When his brother dies under mysterious circumstances in a car accident... London gangster Jack Carter travels to Newcastle to investigate. This movie is very creepy. It is a creepy movie. Um, And it's definitely now that Michael Caine character that we've seen in the past two movies cranked up to like giving absolutely zero fucks. Right. uh, And adding a, a violent component to it <laughs> indeed indeed i think but I, I what i'm trying to say is also a compliment to to mike hodges who wrote and directed the film i think that the the atmosphere of get carter and the use of place is very creepy i mean it opens um jack carter is a hired gun for the london mob it opens in this you know dimly lit room where i think they're slide showing through pornography which is foreshadowing for what's about to come and he like goes you know he it's doing nothing for him so jack goes to the 
to the bar and pulls a scotch bottle out of like what turns out to be a music box, which adds some other kind of creepy um, ambiance to what's going on. And then just the way Newcastle is shot, I think is there's this, there's a scene early on where they're, you know, they're getting drinks after um, Frank's funeral and you see this alley and it looks like it just runs downhill into a coal plant and you get the feeling that this entire town is kind of like a storm drain where everything just flows right down the hill into the saddest most exploitative kind of industry or at the end the sand funicular (laughs) that's just taking sand off the hill and dumping it into the ocean it is a great use of uh industrial setting no i i totally agree with you that the the feel of this movie is like super unique in that sort of gritty, like post-industrial revolution hellscape kind of thing. Or, uh, but also like this is another part of it, like a like a a beachside town that's like, but we want to be a tourist town, and so you have like just the weirdness of like a couple like Coney Island carnival things, but mostly hellscape. Yeah, there definitely like was an attempt years ago to like bring in people, but I think now the town and like one of the sort of fun things about it is how insular it is, yeah, and how like almost like a well, and this sort of gets into like the, one of my first quibbles with this movie is that like this town Newcastle has its own language, and so the beginning part of the movie, Michael Caine like kind of has to like almost code switch back to like how he talked at home before he went to London and like hit it, you know, big time with being a higher breed of gangster or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this one, like seeing him early on in the pubs and stuff and like how public he should be about like getting phone calls and like, you know, who's telling him sort of riddles and who's actually telling him something meaningful uh, is, is sort of an interesting setup. Yeah, I would agree. And he has some, um, he has some good Bogart moments, most especially when he first goes to the Newcastle racetrack and runs into um, Ian Hendry's Eric, who is a driver and muscle for this local gangster, um, Kinnear, played by John Osborne. Um, and he really like Bogarts this guy pretty good, um, where Eric's just like, why do you want to know all this stuff? And and Kane just goes, I'm probably because I'm nosing, um, which is a great way to say I'm snooping around. And then also he describes him to his face. He says, I barely recognize you without your sunglasses, but there's your eyes, two piss holes in the snow, <laughs> which is just a great kind of hard boiled noir. Like, you know, the detective's also the writer. I think this movie's mystery is pretty hard to follow. Is that fair? Well, you warned me that it would be, so I tried to pay like really close attention. I think I got and it. And even you were like, "Oh, it's fine. I get it." And then like at the end you were like, "Yeah, I don't get it." I think I I think I have the details. Um I don't know if like the conspiracy like pays off in an interesting way. Do you want me to tell you what happens? Or do you want to ask questions about what happens? Well, Michael Caine plays Jack Carter. <laughs> am I, 
Am I there yet? That's all you need to know. Am I getting warmer? You're getting Carter, yes. Go ahead. What are your real questions? I think it has something to do with a pornographic videotape by that his niece is in. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. Confirmed. But then there's the the sex worker like in bed with him and she has a copy of it. And then like she's in the tub and he's very upset. And then he just I mean, then it becomes death wish and he just like kills everyone in sight. Pretty much. But I guess I the, what was why was the brother killed for the porn tape that was pretty artful, I would have to say. Both oh in my. the Italian job and in this one, it's like the production value of these movies that like were made with such haste like seem pretty high. <laughs> well, this is a pre-Philip Baker Hall and Boogie Nights ruining everything with tape. These are films, sir. You're you're so right. <laughs> um, this breaks down, my friend, to a rivalry between gangsters that essentially everyone is caught in the middle of, right? So it's it's Brum Brumbly, is that his name? Cliff Brumby, who is a kind of a shady business magnate who's like trying to buy up property, and Kinnear is the local crime lord. So Brumby Greg Kinnear? I didn't <laughs> see him in this. <laughs> it's hard to spot him under all of that like sallow makeup. By the way, not to besmirch the English, but everyone in this movie needs to go for a walk and eat a vegetable, like and, and drink a glass of water. Everyone is just yellow. Yeah, everyone's very jaundiced uh, in this. Uh, yeah, big bags into their eyes. On, they need some people. sleep. Come on, maybe it begins with mental health. Maybe or not breathing coal. Um, it could be an environmental <laughs> issue as well. Um, Brumby's trying to bring down Kinnear, and Kinnear is the one making pornographic tapes. In I keep saying tapes, films involving um, Doreen, who's Frank Carter's daughter. So Brumby shows the tape to Frank Carter to try to get him to call the police or to bump off Kinnear himself. Frank Carter does this, but Kinnear doesn't take kindly to it, so they end up killing Frank Carter, and then they make, try to make it look like an accident. And then this is the same relationship that points out once Michael Caine's Jack Carter plays out, once Michael Caine's Jack Carter gets to town, where it's just these two people are constantly trying to oh, get... Oh, so it was his own boss that set it up, and that's why the boss comes back at the end. No, his boss is Fletcher in London, who sends oh. some goons, but is not intimately involved. <laughs> Then why are they trying to kill him on that boat at the end? And who's the guy with the blonde hair? They were those were goons sent to bring him back. I mean, they must have business interests or just don't want him like to die in Newcastle. I thought that they was like I th- I think that the Fletcher is involved in some way because they I think the rivalry is between Fletcher and Greg Kinnear. No, that's wrong. It's explicitly I, I between Brumby and Kinnear, dude. Is Brumby the guy that gets thrown off the parking lot? Yes. The only part of this plot that impacts character, which is another demerit we probably need to get to, is where Jack Frank's former friend, who's like a local bartender, is trying to help Jack out. 
ends up getting beaten up by these goons who are looking for Jack and like yells from this bed like, we all know how much you suck, Jack, and we know that Doreen is probably your daughter. <laughs> Which is damn, yeah, not the most um, nuanced way or not a good way to actually like sink that into Jack's character to have someone just like scream it at him and have no... One of the weird things is like, you could do some even more basic character work just by having Carter like brood a little bit. I, like you, was hungry for, I mean, at some point it just becomes this very cold, distant man, you know, without maybe some of the charm of the previous films, killing semi-anonymous, you know, middle-aged white guys in fantastically photographed, uh, yes, seascape hell here. (laughs) It kind of, it's like British Peckinpah. Yes, that's a fair comp. Except that, um, you know, like I watched Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia this year, which is like a completely like wicked, nihilist, you know, sad bastard just like bouncing around fucking and killing and watching the people he cares about be killed. Um, This may not make sense, but in Peckinpah, though, there is a depth to the emptiness. There is a thematic depth to the very point that you'll never be able to connect with this guy because to be alive is a violent torture. (laughs) And this movie doesn't allow for even that kind of like thematic depth, if that makes sense. But again, like Michael Caine's doing worse than maybe has been done to him scene to scene. Uh, And I think that speaks more to, I mean, the film's interest in establishing him as this sort of alpha you know, forced to be reckoned with if you're in this kind of, if you're in the game, like you either scare the hell out of people, you know, or get them out of the way. I think the, the final murder where he tracks down Eric and forces whiskey down his throat and then dumps him into the sea is actually, I connected with that more, which is a bizarre thing to say because it's just like pure sadism from like a doomed individual. But I think that even what I longed for in this movie was that anything be revealed about anyone. <laughs> and so when it was revealed that Jack was a sadist, I was like, Oh, well, here's a character detail that I can actually invest, invest in that he's doomed. And this is like the one thing he wants to accomplish in your classic kind of revenge reconciliation sort of way. Right. Um, but what, what is revealed about anyone else in this movie at any point? That's an interesting right. detail. Yeah. It's one of these movies that, well, I, you know, after watching it, I said, huh? Yeah. You know, kind of with a question mark, but kind of with an exclamation point, you know, I thought it was beautiful and gorgeous to watch. Like even the, I don't know, even the photography of people's faces, like just seemed more had to have more clarity than the previous two movies and maybe that's just the cut i saw what about Uh, that um like the sunday morning undertaker vibes of all the cops coming to the house at the end like that those were wonderfully and moodily directed for sure yeah and there's a lot of good technical stuff here uh that i think makes this movie seminal in the move away from classic Hollywood noir to the long goodbyes of it all. Yeah. Um, And then like what we're kind of doing, you know, now with the noir thrillers that come out mostly from independent cinema, 
But in terms of entertainment value, it has such a bleak, obscure worldview that it's hard to like, I don't know, be that moved emotionally by this. Yeah, I agree with this. And I, again, I, I think I think it could go bleaker. I think it, I think if you felt the hand of fate a little more on the scale, that would help. Um, yes but yeah I just feel like a guy who's just like still falling into bed with people and he's not going to kill that person yet but soon he will um, and I because that's of, the thing you were go ahead that's the thing you were talking about up front is the idea that what makes these sort of cool early Michael Caine roles is being smart enough to like get into trouble yeah and I guess I wanted a little bit more of him having like the foresight to like do whatever uh, in order to outsmart these hometown goons. But really, it's just like, this guy's just more vicious than them, so he's obviously going to win. And I don't know... I mean, this gets into my critique of just like the this kind of Michael Caine, but I also don't know that I believe Michael Caine to be a physically imposing force. Right. I'm going to give this movie a good-bad. I think that the directing in a lot of scenes does carry the day. Um, it's a movie that was like reclaimed and shouted out in the nineties by people like Quentin Tarantino and Guy Ritchie. And you can totally feel like both where both of them would love a movie like this. Cause in their version of it, they would like fill it with detail, like Quentin with like really interesting detail and Guy Ritchie with really stupid detail. <laughs> But like they would take Fair. they would take the anonymous goons and they would be like, oh, that's one eyed one eye Robbins. Like never talk to him about parrots is like the Guy Ritchie version of this movie um, instead of it just being like a guy with a comb over who falls off a cliff. Um, <laughs> so but yeah, it's it's uh, hard to connect with. Um, but, you know, some people are some people are just into like, you know vicious genre some people don't like to connect with the thing that they're watching no some people like vicious genre fare from the 70s and if that's you go nuts i'm gonna give it a good bad interesting i wonder who thinks of themselves as a fan of vicious genre films from the 1970s people anyone we know <laughs> some film like film geeks i know who are just like pride themselves on being like that ex- exploitation movies were the the height of cinema I think this one is, yes, I think it's a good bad. Uh, I think on a technical level, there's some really good photography here. Clearly, yes, clearly it inspires like a whole world of, you know, yes, like the Quentin Tarantinos and like, you know, without this movie, I would not have had to sit through The Gentleman uh, a couple days back. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a good bad, but it is not like a fun or pleasant watch and if you're looking for just like a sort of easy to not easy to follow but like a you know normal (laughs) ability to follow this one is not for you noah found this movie abnormal what is this i found this one abnormally hard to follow that's funny so the next year we're gonna make a really brief pit stop with sleuth in 1972 uh directed by joe mankowitz uh brother of herman who 100% wrote every word of Citizen Kane. Um, that old drunk. 
Joe Mankiewicz, the the great director of All About Eve and other films. Um, this is a two-hander of Olivier and Kane, where Olivier is this wildly theatrical, conniving, successful mystery writer who invites her his wife's lover to the house to try to involve him in this like weird plot to essentially get those two away from him and with a little money and uh out of his life forever and it, it really like lands somewhere between like knives out and clue um a really really meta movie for 1972 um for sure and olivier is unbelievable in it and Kane really has the good sense kind of like he does with Connery in the movie they were about to talk about where it's like yeah I'm gonna let this I wish I had better terms but basically it's like I'm gonna let the alpha be the alpha here and I'm just gonna react and he is fantastic um and I don't want to spoil it but he ends up playing multiple roles in the movie um the in the first half where he plays um where he plays Milo you get some really interesting commentary on uh, a character who's actually using Michael Caine's cockney uh voice and like his working class background as a really interesting and abrasive kind of oil and water with Andrew Wyke the Olivier character so it's interesting to see a movie um draw explicit attention to the idea that um he doesn't doesn't have the same breeding as uh, some of the the acting peers um, that the people would consider him in the same pantheon as. Have you seen Sleuth? I have. I've seen the original and I've seen the remake, which Michael Caine moves over to the the Olivier role, right. and then uh, two thousand and whatever's uh, Michael Caine, Jude Law steps in to play that role. You said the remake's terrible. The remake's definitely not as good uh, as the original. Um, and just a private note to myself here, I thought it was amazing that you managed to talk about the basic setup of this movie without saying the word cuckold. <laughs> I, I I leave 100% of those references to you. I'm glad that I brought it up, though, then, because if that was my role, then I fulfilled it. There you go. Um yeah, so bummer that this movie is is not streaming, but if you can find it, I would certainly recommend it. Both Olivia and Kane were Oscar nominated for their performances. Um it is like really fun and but menacing at the same time. Like it it really feels like late Joe Mank the idea that like Joe Mankowitz came from, you know, this kind of like hyper written like really good but churning machine of Hollywood movies in the 40s and 50s. And then at kind of this late stage is going to like make a movie version of this Tony Award winning play that is kind of commenting on and playing with like the mystery mode that so many of the golden age of Hollywood movies were about um, with like this aging theater star and Kane still kind of in Lothario mode. Um, It is a great, great mismatch of things. Highly recommend. For sure. And it's also, it's going to kick off, I feel like, this thing that really picked up in the late 70s all the way to, I don't know, M. Night Shyamalan or something with this idea of like, nope, that's not the ending. It's something else. (laughs) Nope, actually, it's something else. 
you know, and that, yeah. that sort of like last act, sort of like single or even double, it's not what you think. Okay. So 1975 is the end of the road for young Kane in, I think, like a really interesting way because I love, love, love how both Connery and Kane in this movie, I don't know what their actual ages were, late 30s, early 40s, but they're so like perfectly 37. Like they're undertaking this project with like the last glimmer of like vigor that they have in them. And they both actually kind of like wear their youth in um, a sort of disturbing way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say it's like the last gasps of that youthful charisma uh, that Kane has in these previous movies. And then, of course, that like Connery has through the 60s. Right. And this one, like the grays are coming out like in the temples and on the side of the beard. And like Connery is no longer wearing his hairpiece. Uh and yeah, and with Kane too, he's still in that, he's almost like the last shot of Alfie at this point where, you know, he's out of his prime of being in the military and they're like looking for their next hustle. And, you know, parenthetically, before we make Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, why don't we try to like take over a fucking country uh, with our Western values? Well, he's still like 13 years away from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but, the, you know, it's, it's a long climb it's true. to get there. There is no place on earth too forbidding. There is no adventure too dangerous to dare. There is no dream of wealth and glory too impossible for the man who would be king. Connery and Kane. Rogue and renegade. Reckless and fearless soldiers of fortune on the richest adventure of their life. Across a thousand miles of danger, come with Sean Connery and Michael Caine as they try to capture a whole country, a scheme for rascals to become royalty in the long-lost land of Alexander the Great, Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. And I think what adds to that, too, in kind of a brilliant, or maybe goofy, you'll have to tell me, way, is the way that this movie is framed. And so our our lead into this movie, the person like through whom we're understanding this tall tale here is the famous author Rudyard Kipling, uh, here played by Christopher Plummer, R.I.P. Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, at the beginning of at this point in his career, looking a lot uh, like Michael Fassbender. Sure. But yeah, so we see this like sort of like broken old pirate kind of like wanders into uh, the Northern Star, this like English language newspaper uh, in India. And it turns out that like it's it's the guy that he met three years earlier and went, was about to go on this wild expedition. And so we kind of look off into the horizon and we cut back to three years ago when Rudyard Kipling and Peachy, the Michael Caine character, have this run-in at this train station and Kipling gets involved because he's a fucking Freemason. Uh, he somehow has like affection for these guys and gets involved in their gambit to go to this yet sort of uncharted 
part of Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, to take over uh, as the sort of last frontier here and bring what they've learned in the army to gain power and wealth, uh, you know, sort of in the new world, so to speak. And so that's what they do. I think it's a really interesting fable about two soldiers who only understand step one of empire building. I think they understand maybe steps one through nine of like a 12 step process. Like, I think they're pretty good at like having the zeal to physically make the trip to get there. Like, and they have just enough dumb luck on their side that their laughter causes an avalanche that like reveals a passageway that didn't previously exist. Uh, and I think they're charming enough. And like, yes, it's good luck on their side, really, like with the incident with the arrow that kind of sets up the whole thing. It's just dumb luck that Connery isn't taken out in the first battle. That's what I mean, though. Uh, they're only good at like, oh, like a war and deposing people. <laughs> now you're, yeah, I take it back and you're quite right. Cause they're like, let's just line up here with this army and hope for the best. And then Connery's like charging in while they're still firing the arrows, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. You're quite right that they just have kind of the cojones to do the thing without sort of thinking through like, what is the thing again? Well, cause they're in colonized india and they're both just complaining and complaining about the bureaucracy of the crown um this idea of like what it is to rule in the victorian era they want no part of it right they just want to be victoria (laughs) yes and they're exactly they want to be at the top and they see their passageway to what they consider to be success uh, you know, blocked by the government there. They're sort of like proto-libertarians yes, where they like right. believe in the, the free market of, of whatever. But, you know, the, the thing is the what they have to offer is just like flim-flam. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, a lot of, they have showmanship uh, and that's like their, the thing that they keep going back to. Like, don't forget showmanship. Um, when, when Connery and Kane like march into the office of the Northern Star newspaper editor and are like, yeah, our plan was to blackmail this Raja and uh, you were going to print it because we know this stuff about your sister and Michael Caine is like, hats on, hats off. And they're like both doing it in perfect synchronicity. It's like some real like comedy duo shit. And I think that there is this part of the movie where like these two are such like bros from another era where in some ways it's, especially where Christopher Plummer's character is confirmed. It's like, listen, when you come across two people who are this connected in history and vernacular, do not try to be the third wheel between them because you are not ready for like the Virginia Wolf's, like the who's afraid of Virginia Wolf's um, amount of dynamics between these two people that cannot be reshaped or reformed. That's very interesting, yeah. I almost think that there is, and maybe this is not the hottest take in the world, but I almost think there's like a queer read on this story too. That a movie that's so concerned with masculinity that it almost like goes too far uh, and then it just sort of posits these two men as perhaps like 
maybe they're like romantically involved, uh, which is, I think is an interesting way to, to frame it as well. Yeah. I don't know if I'd like necessarily see that between them, but there is something really interesting about their, they make this compact as they venture into Kafiristan, which is that they won't drink and they won't sleep with anybody. And sleep with women, just to be clear. Right, right, right. There you go. Um, and I think that that on one hand, like that, just like creates a couple moments of comedy. But on the other, I think it's actually brilliant character work because again, they are you know approaching forty, and they are conquerors who, in their minds, are forever twenty five, and they kind of know that each other are fuck ups and they are like men of appetite. And it's just this like, you know, adolescent like blood oath between them. That's going to keep them from screwing this up. And of course they can't like, it's so funny that they have this very faint flickering understanding of how dangerous they both are. And they're doomed in that way. Right. But they kind of know that in the end, they'll have the other one. Yes. Um, which is, frankly, a reason that you have a spouse. Right. Uh, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, no, I I, t- I agree with what you're saying. You know, and I, I think, too, part of the comedy, at least in, like, the like last reel of this, is the fact that there's that similar tension of, oh, like, who makes more money in this relationship? Like, oh, you know, you may be, like, the, you know, treated so royally and, like, live in this palace, but, like, I'm a, I'm, I'm the god right. here, you know? And there's something, you know, again, talking about how these movies deal with, you know, power between men and women and, like, what the idea of being alpha and what the idea of being a predator is and where the line is there. This movie, like, you know, sort of comes off in its first you know, hour, and this is a long movie, uh, first hour and change being kind of this Disneyified, like, you know, heroes on a quest and like on an adventure and like, you know, we're going to make it or we're going to not make it, but it's, we're going to do it by our own, pulling up our own bootstraps. But then they like sort of there, this movie has a more heart of darkness to it. I think when, Connery decides that he has to marry parenthetically Michael Caine's wife uh, and the movie becomes a like a sort of searing indictment more of like male power and control that I think is super timely uh, and kind of gives this movie maybe like a pass for its otherwise problematic geopolitics. We should say of course that like John Huston adapting i mean john houston's made some incredible movies treasure the sierra madre african queen but both of those movies i just mentioned um are not passing cultural sensitivity tests and especially not when we're adapting rudyard kipling you know um well between houston and kipling like we're not exactly talking about the most like sensitive of gentlemen in this period no we're talking about people who made african queen and wrote white man's burden i actually think the worst it's a it's a good performance from Saeed Joffrey as Billy Fish, who is this um, an Indian soldier who had served with the British, who they come across in Kafiristan, who kind of becomes their translator and their envoy to to talk to the um, to the people 
whom they'd like to make subjects. Um, it's a good performance, but like I think the movie does Billy Fish pretty dirty. He's one of the few supporting characters who the film invests in at all. And he's kind of portrayed as like extremely naive to the point of him like dying for the people who call- like he was just sitting around like waiting for white people to show up and he's like oh great now i can serve you and die for you that's that's insulting i think that's worse than any of the like right. the street market snake charming stuff yeah no i definitely agree with you and i would tweak it a bit further to say that he definitely portrays like sort of this model minority slash like house servant role uh, that seems to be a character that's pretty prevalent in Western literature from uh, The Tempest to, you know, The Help. Sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, it, and you can but, you just see there's so much opportunity with that character, too, because you basically have two guys who are on an adventure toward their own demise, and to have, like, a third voice with them who has a different view of what's going on and whether he's just like warning them or whether he wants some some of the fortune for himself or let him there's so much opportunity for him to have a more complex relationship with colonizing brits like it's sitting right there and it's dumb that the movie doesn't do anything with it i'm gonna say again you know 46 year old movie if you don't want to hear us talk about the end end because you want to go watch this it's on hbo max um, I might drop out because the end is pretty unbelievable, but we got to unpack it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think we're giving this movie a tough time in its, you know, cause I, I think we're all having this conversation now. Like, what do you do with movies that have less than politically sensitive subjects in there and dealing with things that we thought were good ideas and turned out not to be, uh, in the popular imagination. But this one is frankly like a lot of fun. Like the collaboration between Connery and Kane uh, really does bring a level of like, you know, how far are these con men going to go, you know, before the house of cards topples over and like the, how flicks watchable that conceit is, I don't think can be overstated. But I think to your point, yeah, it, it is interesting to try to figure out what to what to do with it. And for me to say that like the exoticism is just window dressing is it that's me shrugging that off as a as a white person. Um, but I think it's what it, what's good about it is like it's a movie under which the terrain is colonialism. It's not pretending that like this didn't happen or it was great or it was innocent. Even something like Zulu, I've heard Michael Caine say like, oh, I just thought it was like a we just looked on it as like an innocent war movie. It's like, you did? Because that's stupid and ignorant. Like, this is a movie that understands that these are guys who are fed up with the colonialism that's already happened. Let's do more. And that all of colonialism in its own way is a house of cards. Um, so, yeah, you get to the end of it. And Connery's, of course, gambit to be a god goes horribly wrong in it i think like a pretty like it's a little bit funny that he's just like king nah i'll be god what do you mean i can't marry people i'm from god i'll do what i want i'll zeus this shit um doesn't work out no 
yeah, uh, Shakira Kane bites him. And because he bleeds, they realize he, this is no God. He's the man who would be king. Right. When Peachy plops the head and the crown on Rudyard Kipling's desk at the end. I love that part. Where I should, do you think the movie has been narrated on the level and literally the entire time? Or do you think there was a point where uh, Peachy started painting over stuff? Oh, I think it, the the presumption is that it's a tall tale. Yeah. And that some things may not have happened the way they're explained. And that may speak to the luckiness that these guys have. And I get the sense, too, that like some of this guy's like blackened skin and scar tissue covering him like maybe came from the journey leading up to them being kicked like, out. Like you think they might have dropped wasn't out all... as early as the avalanche and that's some frostbite maybe? That's true too. I just mean that it wasn't as seamless as this guy explains it to be and that this like his literally being crucified by these people uh was maybe like just sort of the punctuation of you know this guy living hard this lifestyle that's unsustainable this very michael kane character of having a moral code that doesn't make a ton of sense to you or i uh but this guy's gonna go for it full bore because that's what he believes uh will yield fortune i think there's some really cool directorial moments from John Huston that can kind of inform your read on uh, at what point was Sean Connery's Daniel Dravet beheaded. <laughs> um, there's a, when they first see the the riches, like the treasure trove of Kafiristan. I really love Houston puts no music in that scene. It's a really kind of eerie sight and sensorial experience where they're looking around at just like mountains of gold the cave of forgotten wonders and there's no like there's no understanding that the audience should be like yeah they made it cool they're rich (laughs) and they're just kind of like mumbling and whispering to themselves like we could we could be millionaires we could be millionaires and i love how eerie that is and then in the final death of daniel the connery character which is a great death he like marches out onto the rope bridge as they're cutting it down and they start to sing this English soldiers fight song and the soundtrack's like playing the horn with them. It's like, and I kind of found myself in that moment being like, this movie has not musically been supporting the belief system of these two characters previously. What's going on here? And I think it's like the Scorsese shutter Island thing where like the score is really ramped up in the perception of this unreliable narrator. Like, I don't think that, the death was not so glorious as it was portrayed clearly. No. And I love the visual motif too of like, once you see them playing soccer with like two different guys heads, (laughs) you like know that that third head is coming. Uh, You know, whether it's, it's Michael, Oh, it's gotta be Sean. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you that I think this movie has like a dark sense of humor to it. Um, yeah. And for that, like as dated and 
questionable as this movie is, I think, especially in the context of the four of them here, it's a good good. I would totally agree. Okay, great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Like, if you can... This this is the kind of thing where, like, Alfie, tough to get over. Like, he's Alfie the whole fucking time. <laughs> this one, I feel like once it becomes sort of this story of, like, stranger in a strange land mixed with the con artist kind of proto um, dirty rotten scoundrels conceit, like, it's just very fun. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's unnecessarily cruel to other than uh, Billy Fish. I don't think it's that cruel to any of the supporting characters in that exploitative a way. It mostly just ignores them. Um, yeah, which is I think unfortunate. But again, I think I'm not. I'm using the word fable very intentionally. There are not that many sixth, seventh, eighth characters in fables. It's about Daniel and Peachy and and this this narrator construct of of Rudyard Kipling. Um, yeah, I think Houston does a very deft job, and so do both actors, of this balance between like we're movie stars and we're total madmen, and you always you get to enjoy a little bit of the like we're marching, we're marching, and then being like, but you guys are nutcases. You are you're people right. who should have been kicked out of you like kicked out of the army ten years ago, and now you want to go start a new war because it's the only thing you know how to do. Um, exactly, yeah. And that, yeah. and I think too, like even on a smaller level, just like seeing these characters grow and change. You know, they're kind of on the same level, but then the second that Connery gets sort of, you know, elevated to this level of God, yeah. you know, there's the, he, he's like, you know, a thousand feet tall for a few scenes, but then it's like, he's like sort of sinks into madness, you know, then Kane is kind of like walking in front of him and like looming over him and like has sort of taken the, the high ground, so to speak. And so much so that Connery's like, please don't walk in front of me. Like you have to kneel. Right. And Kane's like, okay, okay. And then he just <laughs> continues to do what he was doing, kind of sulking back and forth just out of his eyeline. Uh, and I think that's, you know, seeing the Kane thing kind of go from, you know, con man with, uh, you know, all the charm in the world and none of the, none of the shame go to like, okay, man, like, let's get out of here. Yeah. Like the world does have its limitations and we're at the end of our cautionary tale here, uh, is a really interesting thing to consider that I think will elevate Kane into like all time status when we get into this next like 20 year period here. Yeah. It's really significant and far more believable that Conry is the one who charges into the middle of you know, 50 people with spears, like, and Kane is like, what are you doing? That in being, <laughs> in being the beta of the pair, like he's the survivor. He's the one who is going to like make it out of this. Right. Cause he's the one who can do and the in many ways. It's he... a great motif where Conry is trying to like divvy out cattle. and He can't, he can't carry the one. He can't do the math. Yeah. No, but I think that that is sort of an overarching takeaway, too, of what Michael Caine's career will be. It's just like the best beta there ever was. Sure. You know, the best supporting guy that you feel like he's a leading man. But I don't know that like without another person's sort of ruin or whatever, like his Batman to play off of, his Bruce Wayne, like he 
I don't know, like doesn't have the same resonance. And then it, you know, in these previous three felt a little small. Mm-hmm. He also, to his credit, he is enlivened by being around other actors who he and the movie believe to be of his caliber. He's having so much fun with Sean Connery and Laurence Olivier in these last two movies that we've talked about. And whether through him or just the movie's treatment of them, like there's just not one single character in Alfie, Italian Job, or Get Carter, who is on the level of his characters. Like, he doesn't do battle with anyone in three movies that we that are allegedly classic that we watched, which is so odd. Yes. So maybe it's really maybe that, Shelley like, Winters. the two-hander. Sorry. Sure. But I think the two-hander is, like, a better look for Kane. Yeah. I would agree. You know, and that's that's cool. Lots of many people do better in a tango. Me with you, you with what Casey? Are we are we each other's Michael Caines? Sure. I haven't heard your Michael Caine impression, but I imagine it's something like oh, I'm Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have an impression of Steve Coogan doing a bad impression of Michael Caine. I've told you before. All right. This was fun, and I look forward to seeing you for... Um, middle Michael Caine and end Michael Caine? Exactly, middle Michael Caine, when we do uh, Educating Rita and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and uh, try to talk our way around Hannah and her sisters. Should be fun, Said I said about this podcast we're never going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's let's not do that. All right. Oh, yeah, one week from now, we're talking about amnesia movies. So on the off chance that you've made it this far into Be Real, uh, watch Memento and uh, and Long Kiss Goodnight and Mulholland Drive. And Memoirs of an Invisible Man. No. <laughs> I have no fucking idea where that's coming from. <laughs> Bye, dude. Bye. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are right. so wrong. Let's and you can look at my live video let's, for let's, proof let's, because let's, I, that's the do, very thing I don't do. What, I do, say do, that he do, used to talk do, like that. Do you, Michael Caine? Okay. I say, Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s, right? But that has changed. And I say that over the years, Michael's voice has come down several octaves. Let me finish. And all of the cigars and the brandy don't let me finish can now be heard. Okay. In the, I've not fucking finished in the back of the voice and the voice okay. now. Well, I've still not finished the voice. Because you're panicking. I've, yeah, no, because you look stop. like you're about to bloody talk. Let me finish. Right, so, Michael Caine's voice now in the Batman movies and in Harry Brown. I can't go fast because Michael Caine talks very, very slowly.